Good morning everybody. It seems a, a long time since I was up here last. Um, I had a, a session off when I went on holiday. I hope you've still got some remembrance of what we've looked at in the uh, letter of the Philippians. We're going to continue today with the study of Paul's letter. Today we will see Paul beginning to address some issues which relate specifically to that fellowship. Previously, you may remember, we've looked at many exhortations which Paul gave to the Philippians, which I said can easily be applied to any modern-day fellowship to encourage them in their walk with the Lord Jesus. So when we look at the specific issues within the Philippian church, we may have to look a little bit harder and deeper to learn from those experiences and thus derive benefits for ourselves. These can then be applied as much the same as the exhortations to our own lives and circumstances. But first of all, I'd like to remind you of a scripture. Some of this might seem, uh, some of the Philippians that we're going to look at today might seem a little bit boring. But let me remind you of a scripture that Paul said to Timothy in his second letter, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So there's always something that you can draw out of Scripture, something you um, might hear. Um, I should have prayed first, shouldn't I? Let's pray now. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is a living word. We thank you for your spirit who enlightens us. And we pray now, Lord, that uh, we would hear what you're saying to us today. We do pray, Lord, that your word will speak to us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So, sorry about that. I should have prayed first, shouldn't I? The next two passages, then, that we will look at concern Paul's commendation of Timothy to the Philippians and his praise for Epaphroditus who was, of course, uh, you will remember, a member of the Philippian Fellowship. And he was sent from Philippi to Rome, bearing a gift for Paul's ministry. And he was also commissioned by the Philippians to stay with Paul and serve him in that ministry. So our first reading, we're going to have quite a few scriptures today, not just from Philippians, um, but I think they're all encouraging. Uh, We're going to start with Philippians 2, verses 19 to 30. Philippians 2, 19 to 30. And this is continuing from where I left off in uh, January, it was now. No, not January. Where are we? Yes, it was January, wasn't it, when I spoke last? But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may... Be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served me with he served me in the gospel. Therefore I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. 
Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick, almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Now with regards to Timothy, we take each person separately. With regards to Timothy, I think it may be useful to remind ourselves about the founding of the church at Philippi which was about 10 years previous to Paul sending this letter. You can read about that in your own time in Acts 16, but I'll bring some um, points out of it now. So it was quite probable that Timothy was converted when Paul visited Lystra during his first missionary journey. Timothy had a Greek father and a believing Jewish mother. When Paul returned to Lystra on his second missionary journey, which was a couple of years later, he found Timothy described thus, well spoken of by the brethren at Lystra and Iconium. So he had made a name for himself, if you like. Paul then included Timothy in the missionary team, which, when reaching Philippi, consisted of Paul, Silas, or your Bible might call him Silvanus, Timothy and Luke. And as you may remember, the stay in Philippi was quite short and the cause of the termination was brought about by Paul commanding a spirit to come out of a fortune-telling slave girl. This, of course, deprived her owners of an income source and eventually led to a great commotion being stirred up and the imprisonment of Paul and Silas. Now, just as an aside here, this is an interesting thing, but it's totally irrelevant, I think. Well, it's not perhaps irrelevant. As an aside, some wonder why Timothy and Luke escaped imprisonment. Has anyone ever wondered that? No? Okay, well, one possible explanation, and this could be pure fancy, but it could be that Paul and Silas were Jewish and looked like Jews. And uh, Luke was a Gentile, and Timothy, as we just heard, was half Jew and half Gentile, and it's most likely that they both looked like Gentiles. Now, Philippi, of course, was a Roman colony, and there was an undercurrent of anti-Semitism throughout the Roman Empire. This hypothesis, and that's what it is, may be supported by the words used in the accusation before the magistrates when they were brought to um, book in Acts 16, 20 and 21. You don't have to turn there. It says, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. So there you are. Luke and Timothy may have escaped imprisonment because they were Gentile or Gentile-looking. 
But that's just an interesting aside, I think. Now, having spent one night, just one night in prison, and being instrumental in the conversion of the jailer and his family, we mustn't forget that, when the magistrates found out that Paul and Silas were in fact Roman citizens, they were somewhat embarrassed, and they asked them to depart from the city. So they then went on to Thessalonica. We, returning to Paul's letter to the Philippians, we see that Paul has faith in the Lord that Timothy is well qualified, or you may say gifted, to visit the church on his behalf and bring back an accurate assessment of their spiritual health. We note that Timothy was willing to go anywhere that Paul requested, as his desire, Timothy's desire, was to serve Paul and the Lord Jesus. And indeed, Timothy, at Paul's request, also went to Thessalonica. We read that in 1 Thessalonians 3.6. And he went to Corinth, and we read that in 1 Corinthians 4.17, as well as going to Philippi in this instance. Paul describes Timothy to the Corinthians in that quote that I just mentioned above. My beloved, beloved and faithful son in the Lord, looking at the passage that we're reading now, um, Philippians 2 verse 20, Paul refers to Timothy as being like-minded to himself in that they had the same love and care for the wider church. In verse 22, Paul describes Timothy in a similar way as he did to the Corinthians. As a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. And also in the same verse, Paul reminds the Philippians that they know Timothy's proven character because he had spent time with them in the past. So that's Timothy in the background to that. Now we turn our attention to verses 25 to 30 and we look at the character of Epaphroditus. This character only appears in scripture in this letter, so we have to find out everything we know about him from this letter. Paul describes him as a brother, a fellow worker, and a fellow soldier, also one that ministered to his needs. However, Epaphroditus became sick and nearly died, and was not able to minister to Paul, as the church of Philippi had perhaps hoped. Now, if you read between the lines, which is dangerous in the scripture, if you read between the lines, it seems that the church of were somewhat disappointed and let down probably that Epaphroditus had fallen ill. On the other hand, Paul appears to have everybody's heart. You see in there that Epaphroditus appeared to be wanting to return home because of his illness. And Paul wishes to send him back. Paul wanted the Philippian fellowship to realise that they had fulfilled their imagined or perceived obligation to Paul's ministry by their gift and by their sending Epaphroditus in the first place, even though he became sick and wasn't able to continue. Paul also wanted the fellowship to Epaphroditus back with all gladness. Knowing that Paul, knowing that Paul had been helped in the, in the short time that he had been there, and that he would be at peace, knowing that Epaphroditus was back among among his own people, those that he loved in Philippi. 
So what lessons can we learn from these accounts of Timothy and Epaphroditus? Some things that um, may have spoken to you, I don't know, but things that spoke to me when I was studying this, questions that you can ask yourself. Are we willing to go anywhere the Lord may be calling us to go in the way that Timothy was willing? Do we have a wide love and care for the church of Jesus Christ? Do we have a proven character? Timothy's character was proven, you remember, by his previous actions. And if you think about Epaphroditus nearly dying for the sake of the gospel, do we regard the work of Christ more than we regard our own lives? Just a few of those things I've mentioned there. There may be others. Now let's go to chapter 3, where Paul warns against legalism. And this is probably the first real problem that we've encountered in this letter. So chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 to 16. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I have more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be 
of the same mind. Okay, quite a long passage. Now, the first comment to make is about the word finally in verse 1. Some speculate that uh, the letter to the Philippians was in fact several letters put together and that this word finally was the ending of the first of those short letters. However, there is no real evidence for this and the experience, the expression, sorry, finally could also mean furthermore or in addition. Now Paul's exhortation to rejoice in the Lord in verse 1 belongs with what follows. His readers are to maintain the joyful spirit typical in this letter, even though Paul now deals with some unpleasant matters. Joy and rejoicing, just as an aside, are mentioned about 18 times in the letter, and it's referred to, as you probably remember, as the the joyful letter, um, and twice in this passage. So joy, we spoke about joy earlier, didn't we? The joy of the Lord is our strength. The second half of verse 1, these words, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe, could be interpreted in at least two different ways, possibly more. And firstly, and because of the warnings that follow, it could be reiterating what Paul wrote in chapter 1, 27 to 30. If you flick back to that, if you want to look at that, chapter 1, 27 to 30, and he mentions um, a particular word, their adversaries. So they obviously had some people that were causing them problems. A second um, interpretation could be referring to going over sound doctrine, the basic truths of the Christian faith, if you like, the bread and water of life. Just a quote here that I threw in. Jesus said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and shall never thirst. And I had the, the picture of the Philippians needing to keep their eyes fixed upon Jesus. Now in verse 2, Paul warns against the Judaizers and calls them dogs, evil workers and the mutilation. At the time of Jesus and in in the um, Middle East, it was common for wild dogs to roam the streets of the cities and uh, scavenge among the rubbish heaps and be hostile generally to passers-by, truly wild dogs. In the Bible, the dog was a low form of life and represented everything unclean. And of course, it was also the name by which the Jews called the Gentiles. So here, Paul flings this name back in the faces of the Jews who perverted the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Judaizers were quite sure and indeed prided themselves as being workers of righteousness. They were blind to their own religiosity and the grace of God. In Paul's eyes, they were evil workers because their teaching took people away from God rather than bringing them nearer to God. They tried to please God by their own efforts and rejected the work of Jesus upon the cross. The Judaizers believed that Gentiles must first become Jewish proselytes and submit to circumcision before they could become Christians. And in referring to the Judaizers as the mutilation, 
Paul is being sarcastic. Apparently the Greek verbs for the words to circumcise and mutilate are like each other, but self-mutilation was forbidden in the Old Testament, of course, and you can read that in Leviticus 19.28. So Paul was effectively saying to the Jews, you Jews think you are circumcised, whereas you are only mutilated. At this point, I just wanted to look at a couple of um, Old Testament scriptures concerning um, circumcision. Now, real circumcision is devotion of heart and mind and life to God. In Deuteronomy 10:16, you don't have to turn to this. Moses says to the people of Israel, "Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked." No longer. And there's a similar scripture in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. In Jeremiah 6.10, Jeremiah prophesies to the people of Jerusalem, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. So that was why Paul was so um, strong with his words there. Dogs, evil workers and the mutilation. Now returning to Philippians 3.3, 3, Paul says to those truly circumcised, sorry, says that those truly circumcised are those who worship God in spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus and who have no confidence in the flesh. So Christian worship then is not following a ritual or observing the letter of the law. It is a heart, mind and spirit response to the good news of Jesus. And um, I thought um, this quite beautiful when I read it. I'm not so sure now, but um, turn to Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, because I thought Paul expressed this thought quite um, beautifully in these words, but they, they might sound a bit harsh. I don't know. Colossians 2, 11 to 14. I'd like to share them with you, though. So, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I thought that was quite moving, actually, when I read that. So back to um, Philippians 3, verse 3. Rejoicing Christ Jesus is better than and boasting Christ Jesus. As humble believers, we should only boast of what Christ has done for us. Our only pride should be that we are individuals for whom Christ has died Having no confidence in the flesh is recognising the fallen human nature and understanding that we can only be saved by placing our faith 
in the grace and mercy of God and the love of Jesus Christ. By contrast, the Judaizers put confidence in their own righteousness, believing that certain ceremonies and rituals were necessary for salvation. Now in verses 4 to 7, Paul lists his fleshly attainments as a Jew before he met the risen Lord, of course, effectively boasting of his good pedigree and self-righteousness. However, when he did meet the risen Christ and believed, Paul in verse 7 counts his many gains a loss in the face of Jesus. Paul was convicted by the Spirit that the only righteousness that brings salvation is that obtained through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And moving on to verses 8 to 11, Paul then describes the benefits that accrued to him when he came to Christ. The knowledge of Christ in verse 8, and Tom's mentioned this before and over the past few weeks, I'm sure, is simply not to know about Christ, but to know personally by experience. And for Paul, the knowledge of Christ Jesus as his Lord was an intimate relationship with Christ. It began at his conversion and was a growing relationship as Paul continually trusted in Jesus and obeyed him. Paul describes in verses 9 to 11 what this growing intimate personal relationship with Jesus means to him and in turn should mean to all believers. So Jesus came to save us from sin and make us right with God the Father. That's the foundation, isn't it? When we are in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us. This righteousness is received through faith in God and faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, as John calls him in one two one. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The power of his resurrection tells us three things about our relationship with Jesus. These are Paul's thoughts, by the way, but they should also be ours. He will be with us in this life through his spirit who indwells us. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6.19. His resurrection is the guarantee of the life to come. Again, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 and following. And his resurrection is the guarantee that the risen Lord is always with us. Jesus' words from Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Paul's words again from Romans 8, 38 and 39. Those quotes are in my um, notes, so you'll see those. The fellowship of his sufferings meant to Paul that when he suffered, he felt as if he was sharing in the sufferings of Christ. It was a privilege to suffer thus, not a penalty, and it brought him closer to Christ. And you get that wonderful list, well, wonderful list, severe list of Paul's sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11, 22 and following. You can look at those when you're at home and just see how much he did suffer. Now in verses 12 to 16, the final section of this reading, Paul talks about pressing on, laying hold, apprehending, reaching forward and pressing towards the goal. The goal that he refers to is none less than being Christ-like. 
And we get this from his letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. I think it's good that you read this now, or you look at it when I read it. So let's go to Romans 8, verses 28 and 29. Such a fantastic passage, this. You may have missed this, I don't know. It stood out to me, I I didn't realise this, when I read it again. So just verses 28 and 29 of Romans 8. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And this is the bit that I'm talking about. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, that's Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now this goal cannot be completed in this life, obviously. And Paul describes it in verse 14, back to Philippians, which is, as the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now you can use your fingers again. John confirms our Christ-likeness in heaven in 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2. You might like to look at that. 1 John 3, 1 and 2. I don't know about you, but I always find that when I read scripture myself, it's much more encouraging. Um, it boosts your um, your faith, if you like, than if someone reads it to you. So you can read it along with me. I don't mean aloud. <laughs> no, we'd be all over the place, I think. <laughs> Follow me as I read it, I should have said. Right, 1 John 3, 1 and 2. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. That's amazing to start with, isn't it? Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, meanwhile, during our time on earth, we should seek the purpose for which Christ has called us. We should forget what we may have already achieved and look for continued growth and maturity in our spiritual lives. And remember that though Christians proceed along the same path, they may be at different stages of progress and should be faithful to as much as God's truth as they understand. And we are to walk the walk with the heavenly prize in mind and seek to progress in our sanctification. Paul calls that um, working out our salvation, doesn't he, in an earlier part of Philippians. Now, as um, I mentioned previously that the letter of the Philippians was full of exhortation and encouragement, I thought we could conclude by bringing out um, some of those things that can be found in these passages that we've studied today that we might use as exhortation and encouragement and can apply to our lives. So just a few that I've listed here. We receive and esteem faithful servants of Christ who may come among us. That's Philippians 2.29. Rejoice in the Lord always, of course. Um, Philippians 3.1 and 3.3 in this instance. Beware of false teachers. Philippians 3.2, that's the Judaizers in this case. 
seek an intimate personal relationship with Jesus. Um, Philippians 3, 9 to 11. We can never know enough about Jesus, can we? And forget the things which are behind us and always seek to grow in faith and maturity. Philippians 3.13 And press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3.14 Let's pray. Father, we again give you thanks for our Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, for your plan of salvation. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We do pray, Lord, that we would, as we read your word, become more and more like your Son, that you would help us in this walk of sanctification, working out our own salvation. We thank you for that gift of salvation. Help us, Lord, to be Christ-like for his glory. And in his name we ask this. Amen.